You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. The question we asked ourselves was, as these two S-curves are picking up in both the utility and the automotive space, driven entirely by decarbonization as the sort of megatrend underlying the both, what other trends are happening? And, And the big one was digitization. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. In today's episode, I'm talking with Apoorv Bhargava, CEO and co-founder of WeaveGrid, This company is using artificial intelligence and machine learning to help electric utilities integrate the growing supply of renewable energy and the growing demand from electric vehicles. I'll ask him about the challenges and opportunities he sees in the electric utility and transportation sectors and how WeaveGrid approaches them as a system problem that can be solved with prediction and optimization models. And as usual, I'll ask him to share some advice for those interested in working at the intersection of business and climate change. Here's my interview with Apoorv Bhargava from WeaveGrid. Apoor, thank you so much for joining us here on Climate Rising. My pleasure. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Terrific. Well, let's start with just an introduction. What's your role at WeaveGrid and a bit about how you got there? I'm the co-founder and CEO of WeaveGrid. And I think my former colleagues at Stanford GSB would be very upset to hear that I'm on an HBS podcast before theirs. But that is a part of the journey here in starting WeaveGrid. My whole life, I've been really passionate about this this broader area of energy, climate, and sort of the systems problem that, that climate is. Part of it was driven by the fact that I had the opportunity and privilege of growing up uh, across the world. I was born in India, grew up most of my life in the Eastern Mediterranean, though, out in Cyprus. And as I was doing so, we went through these series of events that I think just kept accelerating that interest in, in a variety of ways in, in the broader energy and climate question. There's some pretty severe droughts out in the mid-90s where we ran out of water, and that's first exposed me to an interest in resource questions. I would go back to visit family in India and would always see air pollution issues and energy issues and power outages and so forth. And that got me really interested in sort of what the questions and challenges were around human development and potential for humans if we had more access to resources. And then finally, in the early 2000s, the Iraq war was very much front and center in the Eastern Mediterranean, given Cyprus as a pretty geostrategic kind of location and the Royal Air Force has forward operating bases out there. So we got exposed to that. And I think for me, that was like really my aha moment of climate is this massive systems risk multiplier on top of a very complex systems problem of energy and access to resources and geopolitics and, and human development and so forth. And so that took me down a path of going really, really deep in energy. Several years later, I ended up in college out in Houston, was a chemical engineer and an energy economist there. Initially thought to myself, I was going to go get get a PhD, save the world that way, but found that neither the academic track nor the research track really kind of tickled my fancy. And so I ended up actually, believe it or not, applying to, to business school. Worked initially in management consulting, started off at BCG in their energy and utilities 
portfolio out in Houston. Spent a few years after that at a at a startup called Opower out in Washington D.C., where they were building software for utilities, particularly focused on energy efficiency software, and, and loved that experience. Just learned so much. And so at Stanford, I was getting my MS and my MBA. That was really where this question started coming up into my head, which was, how do we start to think about the coming together of two massive industries, the automotive industry and the utility industry? And these two industries combined make up about 62% of all emissions. That coming together of the two industries via electrification is an incredible opportunity to actually accelerate the decarbonization transition. That's where the genesis of LeafGrid started. Terrific. Very interesting journey. Uh, and it, I would say, this is my plug for MBA programs, MBA programs, even outside of HBS, uh, can be really useful uh, <laughs> skill-building places yes. to help people get into this business and climate space. So I'm glad to talk to someone who, uh, who experienced that. I couldn't agree more. I think MBA programs are a place where you learn how to build and scale organizations and how to be a leader. And I think that leadership training is so critical as we think about climate transition. People ask me, how do I break into climate? And I always say to them, climate is the rewriting of the global economy. We are rewriting the global economy with a view towards decarbonization. And so if MBAs have skills and value in any business, they will have skills and value in any business that is moving towards a decarbonized future. Learning how to scale businesses is going to be a really critical need as we think about the challenge ahead of us in the decarbonization transition. I'm 100% with you. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to use your uh, your remarks to, to my students. There we go. So let's dive into WeaveGrid. You were out there working first at BCG, then Opower, and then you decided to co-found a company yep. in this space. So tell us a little bit about what WeaveGrid does. What's its target? How does it add value? My co-founder and I met in grad school. John, my co-founder, was getting his PhD at Stanford. I was getting my MBA. So that very classic PhD means MBA story in some sense. But ironically, ours was not sort of a lab spin out or anything like that. Ours has always been a problem and a solution, a problem that we saw coming, something that we knew was going to be an inevitable problem. And in some ways, the solution almost felt obviously inevitable too, but nobody was doing it. And that was why we decided to create it. Taking a step back, you've got two very siloed physical systems. Today, when you think about the fossil-driven infrastructure, you turn on your electricity, that's probably some natural gas power plant firing up somewhere, delivering electrons to your neighborhood, to your home. And then you get into your ICE, internal combustion engine car, and you go off to a gas station to go fill it up, then drive off wherever you need to go. That's the world we live in today. The world we're living in tomorrow is going to be one where you have, yes, still a lot of centralized renewable generation. And of course, increasing amounts of decentralized renewable generation and clean energy generation, as well as electric cars that mostly charge at home in your single family home or your apartment or your workplace even. Now, all of those cars as they're plugging in are actually going to be dependent on an electric grid that was never built to deal with EVs as a use case. Now for context here, right, 280 million cars is more than double the number of households in the United States. And so just the sheer volume of vehicles that'll happen there, that means that suddenly the electric grid is going to have a dependency on those vehicles and the batteries inside of those vehicles for some kind of service, whether it's just a better charging management 
whether it's eventually sending power back out to the grid, whatever it is, those vehicles have to interact now in a much more integrated fashion. The question we asked ourselves was, as these two S-curves are picking up in both the utility and the automotive space, driven entirely by decarbonization as this sort of mega trend underlying the both, what other trends are happening? And, and the big one was digitization, right? So there is a huge trend of digitization and moving to the cloud in the last 10 years in both of these industries, but again, happening in completely siloed ways. And so when the physical silos are about to meet, interact, and become integrated into one giant integrated system, why should the digital silos not do that as well? And in fact, you kind of realize that the need for a system orchestrator, somebody who can sit somewhere in between the 3,000 utilities and at the same time, the 20 plus global automakers that are out there that are building more and more electric vehicles every day, every year, that systems orchestrator and the systems integrator is so necessary because being able to manage those cars in an intelligent way, such that as a customer, you and I don't have to ever worry about our car being charged by the cleanest, cheapest, most reliable electricity, and also have our car available to us whenever we need it, but also so that the utility can be reassured that their grid is going to be kept reliable by all these vehicles coming on and that the automakers can also find a way to leverage these vehicles that they're producing for additional value streams. And, and that was sort of the crux of it. The question was, can we create a win-win-win solution for everyone? And yeah, what we realized is this isn't a problem we can solve through just one-off transactions and one-off partnerships with people. We have to actually build a software platform and machine learning platform to actually go resolve this because need that machine intelligence to resolve what is a much more complex problem than human intelligence can do alone. That's how we got started. Yeah, great. So let me catalog what I think I'm hearing so far as terms of the problems that you're going after. And some of them were sort of implied in your remarks. So let me know if I get these wrong. So one is with the great transition that we're going through toward electric vehicles, this will dramatically increase the amount of demand coming through on the grid. There's a grid reliability question at play. Yep. Can the grid support all these automobiles, especially if they all tend to charge at roughly similar times, like when people come home from work and they all plug it in, or when they arrive at work and they all plug it in? It's going to lead to these spikes in demand, that's right. which the grid is currently not well-equipped to manage. So that's one question, a sort of grid capacity as we move to EV, right? That's one problem. And it's an exceptional summary of what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, but there's more, right? But then you're saying customers themselves have preferences about, for example, the wholesale market electricity changes in cleanliness or greenness over time of day, and it varies also in cost. And so if folks want to have their car charged, not necessarily exactly the moment it plugs in, but it's sometime between it plugs in and when I need it, maybe have an algorithm figure out what's the right moment, you're solving, on the one hand, the reliability to sort of avoid peaks on the system, but you're also perhaps solving some preferences that customers have in terms of the type of electricity. Electrons are electrons, but they're not all produced the same. They don't all cost the same. And that seems like a whole nother set of problems you're solving as well. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I can give you a couple of examples of where we're doing this around the country. Great. For example, on the East Coast with the Exelon utilities, Exelon is the largest sort of utility holding company in the country, you know, Baltimore Gas and Electric, Pepco, Delmarva, Common, and Chicago, a few different utilities. With some of their operating companies out on the East Coast, we're essentially helping drivers manage their charging 
And the way we're doing that is we're just automating it. We're taking advantage of the connectivity that is enabled in all of your vehicles today and a lot of your chargers today. And we're able to actually help drivers have their charging managed for them on their behalf by their utility in a way where they're actually getting the cheapest off-peak charging uh, possible. So electricity prices are sometimes on-peak, they're sometimes off-peak. It's not a perfect reflection of the actual cost of delivering said energy to you as a customer, but it's a good enough proxy. And it's the rate that we all see in our bills. And so when a driver signs up, they actually end up getting the cheapest charging possible by doing so, along with additional rebates for participating. And what that allows us to do is build a much better predictive analytics set for the utility, where we can actually start to predict down to an asset level what's going to happen as more and more cars come online so that we can avoid those problems, especially as we start moving into much more of that optimization phase where we're automating how that car charges. Moving to another example, specifically on the automation side, in the Midwest with Excel Energy, which is another one of the largest utilities in the country, we're actually automating the charging to exactly what you said, those times when wind energy production is highest. So in the Midwest, there's sometimes too much wind energy being generated at any moment in time, too much supply versus the demand at hand, rather than curtailing or dumping that wind energy. We send signals telling their cars to start charging in those moments such that they get access to incredibly cheap electricity, but also get access to what is incredibly clean energy. That's a really important thing. And then out on the West Coast with Pacific Gas and Electric, where almost one in every five EVs lies within their territories in Northern California, there's this huge question around grid reliability, particularly climate change-fueled grid reliability factors. Uh, you know, Unfortunately, due to the changing climate, there is a lot of forests that have just kind of died out and that can cause wildfires to break out, especially if there's high winds and so forth. And so very intelligently, the utility has started saying, okay, look, we're going to preemptively shut off parts of the lines to avoid any kind of sparks and so forth in this kind of tinderbox that forests have become in, in parts of Northern California. It's a really unfortunate thing for customers though, because we have your power shut off potentially. And as we move to a world where mobility is increasingly linked to the grid, how do you ensure mobility resiliency as much as you're ensuring grid resiliency, right? So how do you make sure that your car is also able to take you somewhere? With PG&E, we designed a program where not only do customers get access to cheaper charging and we can automate their charging for off-peak, et cetera, but we're also able to actually manage it such that in these events where preemptively the power has to get shut off, we're able to actually alert and manage those cars in such a way such that instead of somebody waking up and finding their power out and their car is only at 20% state of charge, now they have 100% fully charged battery. If they want to drive off to a community center, they want to go off to grandma's, whatever else, they can do so. And hopefully in the next couple hours when the power is back on, they're all ready to go. Wow, it's really interesting. Let's talk a moment about the cost versus price story here, because of course, costs are varying all the time on the wholesale market. And customers are largely shielded from those variations in the short term uh, until like there's a rate hike or something like that. And maybe they see one price all the time, or maybe the price changes monthly, or you mentioned there's some places where they see a peak and an off-peak price. What does the pricing story at the consumer level look like in the markets you're operating in? The key is we don't even want you to be thinking about us there. We are very much out there in the background, enabling you to sign up for this program by going to your local utilities page signing in with your utility account, signing in with your automotive account. Increasingly, you'll have your Tesla app, your Toyota app, your whatever 
car companies up. And so you just have to connect through those two entities. And then we're going out there and doing the heavy lifting on this, the data and integration of those data sets and, and data fields, and then starting to build out the predictive machine learning components and the optimizations and so forth. But to you as a customer, you know, you just get to go in and say, I want my car fully charged by these times. You receive a varying amount of incentive depending on whatever your utility and their regulators have determined right. Then really it's it's sort of a plug it in and set and forget. Like don't really think about this too much. And log back into your account. You can see how much money you're saving on your charging. You can see, you know, how much you've saved relative to driving a gas car. You can see, you know, whether or not your charging has been done in the smartest way possible. So there's all these little experience elements that allow you as a consumer to feel very much in control of your charging and your charging decisions. But really the key is that it's about making it super easy for you as a consumer so you don't have to think about all these factors. Got it. And so, yes, this incentive from utilities piece was a piece of the story that I hadn't appreciated because most folks maybe get to choose which generator, right? If they want to have their normal utility generation of electricity or they opt into a, a greener portfolio. And those tend to have a fixed price per kilowatt hour, at least in the markets I've lived in. And so I was wondering, like, how does this savings get passed on to consumers or are consumers more just happy about the timing, which might shift the profile of the electron generation capacity. And, and you're sharing here that this incentive piece, whether it's a sign-on incentive, a monthly incentive, or a per kilowatt incentive, depending presumably on the market, that's how consumers are sort of being enticed to opt into these programs. Yeah, there's three sort of savings mechanisms I think about for consumers in general. So there's what I would call the participation incentive or the participating program incentive. There's what I would call cost savings through your rates, so bill savings. And then the third one is what I would call, for both non-participants and participants, what I would call overall systems benefits. The first one is pretty self-evident. If I'm giving you an incentive of some kind, then great, you get $50, $100, whatever that is from your local utility for participating. Thank you so much for allowing us to work with you for making a better grid. I think the second one is exactly as we talked about, you know, if you're charging at certain times because your rate allows you said flexibility, you're actually receiving more economic value and you're able to save, you know, your $20 a night or whatever, or a month or whatever from charging off peak. And then the third one is probably one of the most critical ones, which is that I actually am so much less worried about electrification's impact on crashing the grid. It's more about what is the cost implication, cost measured in both the amount of assets that have to be upgraded or time delays in getting equipment out onto the field in order to electrify everything. And I think the cost implications of electrification, if not managed well, are actually extremely high. That's the challenge that we're trying to avoid. One of the primary pillars in our sort of technology DNA is how do we enable that cost to come down tremendously? And I think a study by my former employer, BCG, talked about this point, which was that, look, we could be looking at 20% increase in rates if we don't manage this. And I think to be very clear, to be managing it in a much more intelligent way was their way of saying, like, this is what a theoretical limit could be. The technologies just weren't out there to actually go out and optimize in that hyper-local, hyper-specific manner in a way that really tries to eke out every ounce of efficiency in the system. And that's what we've built is an incredibly intelligent machine learning product or suite of products that can do so. That I think is so important because that cost efficiency is given back to all stakeholders, all ratepayers, all customers. Whether or not you drive an EV today, whether you choose to not drive a car 
that's a really important saving that most of us don't think about. In the background of all this is, I suppose, just how many additional power plants we're going to have to build, site, zone, approve in order to accommodate this electrify everything movement, which is moving not only transportation to electrical sources, but also heat, for example, with heat pumps and such. And the whole electrify movement is, you know, these estimates are enormous as far as the additional electrons that'll be required. I think what you're saying is there's two ways to build effective capacity. One is we're going to build more power plants, no doubt. And how can we smooth out demand so that we most effectively use them so that we don't build a whole bunch that are only used in narrow circumstances? So that we have grid reliability, let's see what we can do with offsetting that demand to shave off those peaks. That's exactly right. The former guest on this podcast, Trigger Shaw, he talks about the concept of virtual power plants. So aggregation of resources that allow you to both offset demand, but also fill in the gaps or really balance supply as an aggregation of demand side resources. You talked about power plants and the need to build infrastructure. The actual bigger problem with electrification is more about the very brittle grid infrastructure. The grid is made up of generation, transmission, and distribution. And it's actually the sort of poles and wires in the grid part that's really, really going to be the very expensive part of this transition if we don't manage this more intelligently. And so what we're trying to do is augment that brittle infrastructure, make it more intelligent, actually enable us to leverage it more effectively and not have to go out and whole hog upgrade everything because that's just really, really costly and, and it will slow down the transition. This is maybe my hot take for the podcast, but we often talk about this idea that the energy transition will be costly. The truth is, a non-transition is far more costly. Lives are lost every day because of the amount of air pollution driven by incredibly terrible emissions from polluting vehicles, polluting factories, polluting infrastructure. Obviously, the climate impacts are incredibly high, right? Whether it be natural disasters and so forth, or just the the shifting yields of crops, stuff like that. You know, there's there's a ton of cost already. Yep. And so I, I think we have to look at it in a holistic systems oriented way. And I think one of the central premises of WeaveGrid is let's build a system solution that actually creates value for all stakeholders involved in order to tackle what is a huge systems problem in climate change. No, I agree with all that. The challenge, of course, is balancing the system, right? Like it could be that you need to spend five cents more in one bill in order to save 20 cents elsewhere. Well, you still are looking at that five cents in that one bill going like, oh, this feels more expensive. That's right. And uh, even if it's more than offset by the benefits that accrue system-wide, even system-wide that affect you as an individual. That's such a great point. And it's one which, what I often, nowadays when friends ask me, hey, should I go buy an EV? I'm like, yeah, you should. And I'll tell you why. Look at the amount you're spending every month on gasoline because you do own a car. The problem is we as humans don't think of our individual energy system. We think of it as oh, my electric bill, my gas bill, and then my monthly car payment and my gasoline uh, spending on that. But if I actually took my gasoline spending, my insurance, all of those other payments, the whole energy part of transportation and the energy part of electricity and gas, and I combined those two, and then I said, okay, let's electrify that, you end up finding that, yes, there are upfront payments perhaps that seem a little more expensive, but then the overall cost comes down pretty dramatically, even if there's some amount of rate increases. Yeah, it's it's a system problems are, are notoriously challenging. I wanted to draw in one of the areas you mentioned earlier, which was part of the grid stability piece, is not just sort of offsetting when you charge, 
but perhaps also using uh, the batteries and reversing that flow so that it supports the grid in moments where the grid could use some support and getting customers to agree to use their auto batteries in a two-way exchange. So is that something that you're implementing or start thinking about? And what is the customer acceptance and the regulatory issues sort of in reversing that flow? It's definitely an exciting proposition. If the battery that I purchased for mobility purposes could be leveraged in moments where I really don't need it for mobility, or I don't value the, the optionality of my mobility as what could I do by sending a few electrons back to the grid to answer your question, it's definitely something we think about. I mean, ultimately, if you're orchestrating vehicles, whether it's one-way management of the vehicles or whether it's two-way flow of the electrons, it, it doesn't matter to us. Like Ultimately, it still is a thing that needs to be done. The biggest thing that's required, though, for any kind of vehicle-to-home, vehicle-to-building, vehicle-to-grid applications, this technology, this enabling technology, as it were, is much more sophisticated hardware. And I think part of the reason is today, if you take a car home, you ought to actually just plug in a car into a 110 outlet in your garage, in your wall, anywhere. I mean, honestly, if you want to run an extension cord down from your bedroom, you can do that. Yeah. You can also plug in your car into your dryer outlet and get 220 volt charging. And that's also going to completely work fine. And you, know, you can buy yourself a charger box if you want, but you don't even have to do that. You have op the option with little to no added infrastructure to charge your car. However, if you want to make it two-way compatible, it does require more sophisticated hardware. It's not that the vehicles won't be capable. It's not that the hardware isn't starting to become commercially ready. And it's not that the utilities aren't starting to think about it. It's just that all of those things have to happen at the same time. And then there has to be an economic value case for the optimizer, the decision maker, both the customer, of course, the enabling decision maker, and then the machine optimization to say, hey, sending back electrons to the grid should be able to create some value, especially if there's a cost function there. And, and there is, right? Like one, they have less access to my vehicle. Two, it might cause degradation. Increasingly, a lot of vehicles don't have degradation problems associated with any kind of vehicle debris. Some of them do. I don't think that we should consider the technology to be monolithic in the battery space right now. That cost optimization and that, that sort of value to cost problem needs to be resolved. And that's something that, of course, we're more than happy to help and, and are supporting partners on. But the hardware and the vehicles getting out there, that, that Venn diagram that I'm talking about, that hasn't hit scale yet in the residential system. So you're seeing some really exciting pilots. Um, we're supporting some partners on thinking about more and more of those pilots. But what we haven't yet gotten to is a stage where there's enough deployment of hardware. There's enough consumers ready to go and so forth. There's been some really exciting work out in Europe, but less so here in the U.S., I think on the fleet side, you're seeing it more and more because, you know, I think you'll find more willing customers for sure in the commercial segment who are willing to go pilot something out, you know, at one location or another location, but not as much yet on the resi side. I don't think it's that far away. I also think you're going to start seeing it much more in the vehicle to home backup application because mm -hmm. that's one place where customers are really excited about having the ability to back up their home in case the power goes out for a few hours at a time at the very least. 
and the F-150 Lightning's really kind of helped make that reality come to life. Yeah, pretty excited to see the developments happening right now. Yeah, that F-150 has a great ad. Great ad. If I remember correctly, there's a storm that knocks out of power to the house and then no worries, you've got the you got this plugged in so you have backup battery, the lights come back on, your laptop fires back up, things like that. Yep. So does it give you a head start if you have home solar that you already are living in a place where you can feed that to the grid in moments where the grid requires it? Does that give you a head start for the battery system to also feed back into the grid? Or is it different technology? That's a great question. Maybe I'll start with another point, though, very quickly before before moving back to the question about uh, about solar, which is, first of all, I love the fact that you remember that ad, right? I mean, just going back to the sort of the marketing case studies in, in business school and all of that. I mean, isn't it amazing that we're at a place where the Super Bowl has ads the Super Bowl, the marketing event of the year, has ads for an energy or clean energy product. I mean, that's just amazing to mm-hmm. me that we're at that place yep. where, and I think this is one of the things that makes EVs so exciting and different. I mean, you've never seen a Super Bowl ad for a clean light bulb or a LED, but you have seen one for many, many different kinds of electric vehicles. To get into that specific question of, you know, how does home solar help? It definitely does. And I think when you're somebody who has home solar, adding a vehicle that is capable of at least bidirectionality back to your home is very possible. The broader point is this. Consumers are going to be choosing different products and services based on their needs, based on their financial capabilities, based on what they value, what their rates are, what their options are. And I think some folks will have solar and an EV. Some folks will have no solar and an EV, but I think it is inevitable that we move towards an electric future, at least in the light duty space. The automotive industry has concluded that, and it's a place where pretty much every major automaker is investing towards. And it's been driven somewhat by regulation, but it's also been driven by consumer choice and price points and technology learning curves. I think as we start moving to a place where one, two cars per household go electric, you're going to start seeing a lot of new products and services coming out around that consumer experience of being electric. But it continues to be a critical challenge, which is what happens as you put all these cars out there and how do they interact with the grid that is going to support them and is going to make them capable of having said mobility value? Like, you know, you could you could do absolutely nothing from a grid value perspective and you could just let your car, you know, exist as a car that happens to be driven by electricity. But the fact that you decide to plug in your car at home, at work, at whatever, creates some systems cost. And so I think the big question inevitably is like, what are the other things we want to bundle that with, whether it's solar or batteries, or just smarter rates, smarter charging, and much more sophisticated vehicle to home or vehicle to grid? All of those things allow you to build a much more intelligent grid in the long run. I've been so enthralled by the business model and by the opportunity here that I'm almost forgetting to ask a key question here, which is <laughs> this discussion about Weaverd comes after our conversations recently with BCG and with Google to learn about how companies are using artificial intelligence or AI or machine learning in their efforts to help decarbonize. Do you have prediction models? You sort of touched on that a moment ago. There's optimization. Can you talk a little bit about the modeling side of the business? Exactly what are you predicting and then how? And then how do you then shift to the optimization question? Love that. When you think about the driver or the customer experience, today there is no integrated model that a utility or 
you know, if you were on the transportation side, no utility or automaker is really thinking in this integrated manner and to make an integrated model that says, how do I predict the decisions that I make as a consumer where I drive my car and hence due to my driving behavior that is unmodeled, let's say, I then make a series of charging decisions. And then how do those charging decisions impact the demand that is generated on me as a utility down to not just the overall kilowatts at a systems level, but down to that local asset level. So basically, what is that demand at every single point on the entire network from the power plant through to the local transformer? That model is completely unbuilt because, again, transportation has never been something that I needed to keep in mind as I built my stochastic models about what your local neighborhood needed when I was designing a neighborhood feeder or a neighborhood substation or a neighborhood transformer. I just said, okay, look, four to eight homes. Somebody's going to have a dryer. Somebody's going to have a fridge. Somebody's going to have air conditioning. Maybe everyone has air conditioning in a place like Florida. What then? It's only going to require a max of this amount. Let's give it some buffer. Bam, that's my asset sizing. So now when everyone starts driving an electric vehicle, or heck, not even everyone, if one, two, five people in the neighborhood drive electric vehicles where every single EV charging is equivalent to two new households worth of load, even if it's instantaneous, even if it's only for a couple hours at a time when the cars are charging, that lack of model demand, particularly down to the individual topology, is something that's a really difficult problem. And so how do you solve what is becoming a much more dynamic prediction problem? Well, first you need to forecast it. You need to understand it. You need to be able to look further in the future and say, how does it continue creating challenges for me? And then you need to close the loop and say, let's optimize it. Let's actually start to suggest certain times and uh, automations such that it closes out that problem. And even better, one day it can start to predict when the need for an upgrade is eventually going to be there. And I think that's kind of the way we think about it in a very, perhaps a very specific vignette like this. But then we really need machine intelligence to augment the human intelligence that has allowed us to build such an incredible grid over the last 120 years. I mean, look, it's I continue to be a huge advocate for the fact that the electric grid is one of the greatest inventions of mankind. How do we augment that? You need machine intelligence, especially as we move to a world where, again, we're going to have hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of new devices coming online. All of these devices with huge batteries, huge computers, and now they're actually going to be able to provide both the data and the flexibility to make the grid a much more intelligent place. Very interesting. What is the future of Weave Grid? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities you see in the coming years? That's something that, of course, investors love to ask me about, and I, I often, I often say to them, I'm like, look, we've we've got we've built we're building a platform. We're building a platform that sits at the intersection of two multi-trillion dollar industries. When you kind of go and and look at the logo list of partners we have on both sides, you're kind of like, wait a second, these are companies that are in the Fortune 10, Fortune 50. Like, what the hell are you guys doing? I think part of it is like they're looking for folks to really kind of come in and 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 be their partner in this very sort of tumultuous time. And I always come back to the fact that like we have to build immense amounts of trust with these partners in solving what feels like a very inevitable problem, but it doesn't mean that we are the inevitable solution. When you build trust, it gives you a right to explore more and more things. 
yes, today we've started out as a TV focused company. And I think you know, it's the most exciting thing. It's the thing that is unlike any other resource, it's changing exponentially. And I keep saying humans humans have a have difficulty in, in thinking exponentially. So it's something that definitely it's a place where machine learning and, and AI can really play an incredible role. As we keep moving to an all-electric future, as we keep moving to a greater and greater clean energy future, there's going to be more opportunities to explore given the platform, the technology platform, and I think the partner platform that we're building. And so an area that we've started thinking more and more about is, what do we want to do as fleets go all electric? Are there other places where we can augment you know, a lot of other companies that are out there building that fleet charging infrastructure for EV fleets? We started having those early conversations. As more distributed resources like solar panels come on, well, what does that mean to, again, that, that sort of systems orchestration? Does it mean that we need to be thinking more about the interplay between other resources aside from EVs on that network problem that we're solving? So there's a whole bunch of other questions that have come to our mind. I think right now we we like being known as the EV company. Like increasingly, I think in our space, there's lots of players in the space thinking about grid optimization, but I think everyone has this view that, oh, if I can do this other asset type and I can do this other asset type, then EVs are so easy. And I keep saying... Good luck, guys. Like thinking about how people move and behave and how they want to use their car, that's a very different thing from understanding how a thermostat functions instead of a home. Yeah, I think I think for us we want to be really focused for now and, and I think we'll take the opportunities where they come in the future as we as we have a right to play. Great. Final question for those of our listeners who are thinking about getting into the climate and business space. Imagine, you know, go back to your MBA colleagues or, or folks who are currently in MBA programs or other programs, and they're thinking about, okay, this seems like a really exciting space. Maybe I want to follow your steps and become an entrepreneur, or maybe I want to work for a small company, or maybe I want to work for a large company. How do you advise them to sort of figure out this space, to figure out what the landscape looks like and how to plug in? What are the resources you point people to and so on? I often get this question, and I definitely love... Uh... Love, love going back to, to MBA programs and, and, and having this conversation. First of all, I will say it's just amazing. The number of people I've seen in every MBA, leading MBA program around the country who are interested in climate and energy, it's, it's just been astounding, and I'm so delighted to see that. Secondly, I'll maybe repeat something I said earlier, which is it's a rewriting of the global economy. We need people of all from all walks of life. Like this isn't a oh, I only want to go work for a battery company. I only want to go work for a grid intelligence company. I only want to go work for a carbon removal company. No, I mean you're literally trying to do anything and everything, and there's going to be a role to be played as you know the climate changes and as every company has to respond to that changing climate and the risks that are associated with it. Thirdly, there's I have, I'm a former consultant and to an MBA then, right? So I, I have lots of frameworks around this. But what I often advise is to think about the skills you bring today, you know, whether it's functional skills, because you've worked in finance, you've worked in business development, you've worked in whatever. Think about those functional skills. Where could you go apply those functional skills for a company that needs them? If there isn't a company that excites you in the current market, do you have the risk appetite to go do it yourself? Would you want to go start your own company? So it's, it's sort of a combination of skills, risk tolerance, specific parts of the industry that are appetizing. Perhaps if there's no new industry or no industry type that's, that's interesting, then think about old industries that need that innovation and that drive and that thinking about what a decarbonized future of themselves looks like. Thinking along the sort of very first principle parameters 
of what is it that I want to do? And then if I know what I want to do, then where can I go apply those skills? And I, I find that I hire people who have enterprise SaaS selling experiences. They've never worked at utilities, but they, they know how to sell. And so I hire those people. Most of my engineering team has never worked in the energy and utility space. They've worked at Twitter, Google, Meta, you know, lots of fast growing startups before that other, other ones. Like it, it's, that's the, that's the, that's the type of person that comes to, to WeaveGrid. And then of course, yes, we have our experts from utilities, from automakers, all of those folks within the company who really bring that deep empathy for the companies that we work with and the systems and approaches that they take. So there's lots of avenues. The point is every industry needs you. So just go find the thing that excites you and where you want to go spend the next five years of your life. And that's the really important thing. Apoorv, thank you so much for spending time with us here on Climate Rising. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. That was my conversation with Apoorv Bhargava, CEO and co-founder of WeaveGrid.